Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues critical to the health of the American West. West Obsessed is a collaboration between High Country News and KVNF Community Radio in Peonia, Colorado. I'm Kate Schimmel, HCN's Deputy Editor Digital. In today's episode, we're discussing a rising wave of resistance to oil and gas drilling among Navajo communities near Chaco Canyon. To help me understand what's going on, I have Jonathan Thompson, our contributing editor from Bulgaria, here by Skype to talk about his recent story on this movement. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Kate. You wrote about this growing group of people in and around Navajo Nation who oppose energy development near Chaco Canyon. And the kind of configuration of the movement and who's involved is different. I think, you know, we've seen a lot of indigenous movements kind of rise up in the past few years, and, and this one operates a little bit differently. I'm wondering if you could tell us who's involved and how are they fighting against this energy development? Yeah, well, um, so one of the things about the, the development going on down here, first of all, is that it's it's kind of dispersed. So if you compare it to something like Standing Rock, where there was this one place of focus, it was a pipeline, and they just want to stop it from going across this one body of water. Down in the Chaco area, which is in the San Juan Basin, which is one of the most productive natural gas fields in the country, the, it's it's everywhere. You know, there's there's all kinds of um, oil and gas development. And similarly, the, the, the resistance movement is also kind of dispersed in that same way. There's a lot of different kind of branches to it. And so there's this kind of one side of it is the archaeological side, the, the people who are trying to protect the archaeology down there, which is very rich and very interesting. Um, and then you have another kind of branch that's trying to protect the communities down there, which uh, the the recent over the last three or four years, the uh, oil development has really hit um, these Navajo communities like Nagizi and Lybrook and Counselor pretty hard. And they, they had kind of been left alone a little bit. They had been spared the development before, but now it's hitting them. So you've got so they're rising up and saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, this is in our backyards. And in the meantime, over here, you've got this archaeological community. And in the meantime, you've got this other kind of community, which is the, the Puebloan people who live in the Pueblos along the Rio Grande and Hopi and Zuni. And this is their ancestral homeland. And so they're also kind of getting involved. So you've got these different branches. And it's uh, so I, I would describe it as being sort of more dispersed and more scattered um, than, say, Standing Rock, but also uh, kind of bigger as well. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the area? The history and the landscape were so important to the story. Who owns the land and, and what is going on down there? Yeah. And that's, that's a big part of this, this fight as well, is that it's super complicated because most of what's going on now, this, this recent oil development um, and horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing that's going on, is happening on what's called the checkerboard. And it's called the checkerboard because it is a checkerboard or a, I call it a, a quilt, you know, a kind of chaotic quilt of land ownership. So you've got like sections of BLM land, federal land, that are overlain by um, sections of tribal land, 
which are our next two sections of allotment land, which are, that's Indian allotments, and those are sort of private, but also not quite private lands. Um, and you also have state land in there, and you also have private land in there. So if you look at it on a map, that's a land ownership map, it looks crazy. And the result is that it's it's really hard to, um, to kind of... Uh, to regulate it, their oversight is kind of the BLM has kind of the biggest oversight role, but at the same time, the state's involved, the state of New Mexico, uh, you've got the Bureau of Indian Affairs is involved, and you've got these individual allottees um, who are also involved because it's kind of private land. So it's super confusing. And this came out of uh, basically a century long almost, I mean, I would call it kind of a land grab that, that lasted a long time. It started way back when um, the Navajo people were driven off the land by Kit Carson and his uh, sort of scorched earth campaign back in uh, the 1860s. And um, then when they were let back, they were brought back after after taking the long walk or being forced to go on the long walk down to Bosque Redondo, which is down in southeastern New Mexico. Finally, in 1868, they were allowed to come back by their treaty and settle on the reservation. But the reservation was relatively small compared to their original homeland. And so a lot of them ended up spreading out beyond it. And this Chaco region, what we call the greater Chaco region and is also called the checkerboard, was one area that was outside the reservation, but was an indigenous homeland. And so people went back there and that began this conflict in 1868, this kind of tension of people trying to claim their land, their original ancestral land. And um, meanwhile, New Mexico politicians and ranchers and white homesteaders were competing with them for that same land for you know basically a hundred years. And it, that's what created this kind of chaos. Yeah, it's interesting because that taps into, I mean, a lot of the land politics that we see in that area where you have really complicated fault lines between tribal members, between tribal members and white or uh, tribal ranchers, between ranchers and uh, environmentalists, and you get really unexpected face-offs. I'm wondering, though, if you can explain the importance of the Chaco, the greater Chaco region. You described it as an indigenous homeland. What is so important about that region? Well, so back in the, um, between the 9th and the 12th centuries, basically, and that's, that's a pretty broad window, but essentially there was this um, I guess what we could call a civilization or, uh, you know, maybe an empire. Nobody really knows exactly what it was, but what we call the Chaco phenomenon. And that's something that was focused in Chaco Canyon and Chaco, what is now Chaco Culture National Historical Park. Um, and uh, these spectacular pueblos like Pueblo Bonito and Casa Rinconada and these types of things that are pretty famous. It was centered there, but but this, whatever it was, um, was kind of spread out over well over a hundred mile radius from there, all the way into southeastern Utah, into the Bears Ears, what became Bears Ears National Monument, um, up into Colorado, uh, and 
we we know it was the same culture or or there was some kind of similarities because of the architecture and because of the physical the tangible remains of what they left it's very similar to what's in Chaco and it's very unusual like um one of the one of the big characteristics is that the walls of these pueblos are super thick they're really wide and it's really incredible masonry it's very elaborate but uh you know and it's kind of interesting because today we look at it and we see this elaborate masonry the way the stones are are lined up and the way they're they're stacked but back then it would have been covered by plaster so it's it's kind of weird like why did they do that but anyway this was this was spread a long ways out it radiated out from what we call Chaco Canyon now and um it was we don't know exactly nobody i don't think anybody really knows exactly what it was there's a lot of debate about what it consisted of but it's clearly significant and um it lasted basically from the 9th to the 12th century um and uh after that eventually the the pueblo people that that kind of the chaco civilization died out or or transformed into something else and eventually the Pueblo people migrated to the current Pueblos, which are Hopi and Zuni and, and the Rio Grande Pueblos. But of course, the, the physical remains of their culture are still there. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's not just these Pueblos like Pueblo Bonito, but it's also these Chacoan roads that they call them, which were these huge, these long um, linear kind of architectural features that went for 30 miles or longer. Um, it's shrines, it's all kinds of things that are very subtle, but are there and are kind of woven into the landscape down there. And so that's, that's like one part of it that's super important. And then the other part of it, the, the, closely following the Pueblo people were the Navajo people who came in, you know, maybe at the same time, maybe a little bit after the Pueblo people, that's not really clear either. But then they also made it their homeland and they uh, left their own cultural and physical um, landscape there. I mean, they, they lived off the land for a long time before they were driven off and then came back. And so it's this you know, very complicated and very long history uh, there. And, and there's still so much that archeologists um, can learn from that area or want to learn from that area. And there's also a lot that the Pueblo people and the Navajo people um, can get from that area, or that, that they have. There's a lot of significance there, so it's uh, it's important in in a lot of different ways. Yeah, it's sort of fascinating. You've written a lot about this in this story and elsewhere about um, the fact that the entire landscape is sacred, and at the same time you have this tremendous pressure to drill almost anywhere that's possible. Can you tell me a little bit about the scale of the drilling and like how much oil and natural gas is available under this really special and unique landscape? Um, <laughs> there's a lot. Uh, you know, drilling started here in, the 19, in 1921, basically, whereas the first commercial oil and gas well and the first commercial actually oil well they were also drilled about 1921 and in the san juan basin this area but actually it quite a quite a few years before that people had drilled water wells they'd be drilling a water well and they'd hit natural gas and so they'd pipe it into their house you know and oh, no. <laughs> heat their house or whatever i mean it's it's 
it's really a hydrocarbon hotspot. And it's not just oil and, and gas, it's also coal. Coal is, there's two major coal power plants with mines right next to them down there as well. Um, so it's just this, uh, you know, this incredible place as far as oil and gas and coal go and, and uranium, there's some uranium in there too. Um, and the result has been, you know, they've been drilling it for so long that, you know, on the one hand, we talk about it as a cultural landscape where these cultural things are woven into the landscape. At this point, you know, quite honestly, the oil and gas infrastructure is also woven into the landscape, uh, at least as inextricably as the cultural landscape as well. There's so much, so many pipelines and oil and gas wells and roads and other facilities, you know, compressor plants. I mean, it's really uh, intense when you're down there because you you can't really escape that part of it. Um, you know, it's still it's still a very beautiful and like incredible place, but uh, there is that. And so, yeah, I mean, and there's still a lot more oil and gas to be drilled there. Basically. The, the gas, um, most of the gas development has been conventional or coal bed methane or, um, and the oil development now just started a few years ago and that's in shale. So that's uh, the horizontal drilling. But the next, the next kind of bonanza that people are gonna be going after is the shale gas, um, which is also oil, horizontal drilling. And as soon as natural gas prices increase, then you're going to see a lot more of that as well. So you're going to see a whole nother wave of this, I think, after this one. If you're just joining us, you're listening to West Obsessed, a collaboration between High Country News and KVNF, where we discuss issues critical to the American West. I'm Kate Schimmel with Jonathan Thompson here by Skype to discuss resistance to oil and gas drilling near Navajo Nation in the greater Chaco region. Jonathan, in the story, you write about this young activist, Kendra Pinto, who is is really involved with this movement to stop what you describe as an oil and gas oil and gas drilling that's interwoven in the landscape. What does she want, and how did she get involved? She got involved um, kind of late later in the game. I mean, for you know, she's not a lifetime activist or anything like that. She grew up down there in in uh, in a place called Twin Pines, which is kind of not not far from Chaco Canyon, actually, and she uh, she didn't really pay much attention to it because when she was a kid, um, she's around thirty now, thirty one, I think. When she was young, the oil and gas drilling wasn't really happening around her home. Basically, it was happening up north a little bit, maybe ten twenty miles north of where she was, and east of where she was, but not really close to her house. And so she didn't really notice it. And then um, at one point she went away to, I believe, Chicago for a few years uh, to, to kind of try to do something different. And then she came back in 2013. And when she came back, um, when she left, nothing was going on. When she came back, the oil boom in her part of the world and you know, that very close to her home was starting to ramp up pretty significantly. And she pretty quickly got involved um, kind of on a community level. She was working with the, the chapter, the nearby Navajo chapter, which is kind of a, like a county on the Navajo nation. Um, 
and uh, she was working kind of on community outreach and, and just working with people who were being impacted by oil and gas development. Um, and then in 2016, there was this big fire where a cluster of six newly drilled oil wells caught on fire. Um, and there were 36 tanks, big, you know, those big barrel-like storage tanks on this well pad. And they were filled with oil and, and produced water and, and other stuff. And they all caught on fire as well. And this fire burned for four days. Probably about 50 to 60 people were evacuated who lived nearby. And it was, you know, it was a big deal because a lot of people who kind of had worried about the oil and gas drilling were like, okay, this, our worst fears are being realized right now. Like this is potentially a major disaster because there wasn't really a great emergency response plan in place. It took over half an hour before, after the fire started and after people were, you know, freaking out about it. There's explosions for the emergency vehicles to arrive because they came from Bloomfield, which is about 35 miles away. Um, and that really kind of got her really involved in, in the whole thing more. And that also happened at the same time that Standing Rock was kind of blowing up and that the Bears Ears issue was really getting big. And so there was a lot of kind of inspiration from those movements. And so she got involved and, and a lot of other people did as well. Um, at the same time, they, you know, they, they intensified their efforts, I would say. And, uh, since then, um, Kendra Pinto, she's, she's actually testified, uh, before Congress over the methane rule. Um, and she's you know, been super active and, and quite outspoken and really what they're trying to do, you know, I mean, this is less of a kind of keep it in the ground movement than other ones are because in part because you can't keep it in the ground anymore down there because there's so many stinking oil and gas wells it's more of a movement to try to get new regulations in place um and to try to make sure that the agencies that are in charge which there's lots of agencies in charge which just makes it confusing that they enforce those regulations and uh that the people who live down there get something back that there's kind of a good uh a better revenue sharing system because right now there isn't um and and that's in part because of the checkerboard land use patterns that i was talking about that if if you happen to be in a lottie if you happen to have an allotment you happen to be in an heir of somebody who maybe 100 years ago or or whatever was you were granted an allotment then you might get if they drill on your land you're going to get some money from it um, it might not be a lot. It might be a lot. It depends, but there's a good chance that you could be somebody who lives on tribal land who lives right next to that allotment. And that tribal land might be split estate, which means that the feds own the minerals, but the tribe owns the, the land on top. And you're not going to get anything basically from that drilling, even though you might, that, that oil well might be, you know, 600 feet from your house or 700 feet from your house. You're not going to get anything and your neighbor is. And you know that causes some some problems, and so that's one of the things they're working on as well is trying to figure out a way to capture some of this revenue at least to benefit the community as a whole. Yeah, that was one of the things that I found so fascinating about this story you wrote is, you know, I think it's very easy to simplify things into uh, keep it in the ground versus sort of energy company divides, 
in the West and in the country. And this is a place that for historical reasons, for justice reasons, for cultural reasons, that's just not possible. Um, and so they're trying to find some a solution that works for their community and that sort of gets them what they need. I'm wondering if you could talk about what are they doing? So she's testified in front of Congress. There's also a lot of activity at the local chapters. What's going on? What does the resistance look like right now? Um, yeah, and it, I mean, it's it's interesting because, again, it's it's kind of like dispersed, like I said, but it's also, I mean, one of the things that I, I find most interesting is the chapter movements and their resistance. So like I said earlier, the chapters are kind of like counties in a way um, because they're the most local political subdivision of the Navajo Nation. But what's interesting about it is that a lot of these chapters, um, four of them in particular are really strong, actually five, but they've, they've come out really strongly, almost unanimously um, in opposition to oil and gas drilling. Like they've, they're, they're not messing around. So they're not like trying to be like the local government and they're trying to balance with all jobs against this or whatever. I mean, they're hardcore um, resisting this with, they are doing things like um, uh, they, they protest new leases, um, which is one of the things that, that they are trying to do that is sort of like a keep it in the ground thing. They don't want more land leased to oil and gas companies because basically 90% of the land down there is already leased. So they're saying, hey, let's stop new leases. They want to um, get more equitable revenue sharing, like I talked about. They want to, uh, some, of the, some of the chapters are trying to come together um, to try to amplify their individual voices and try to create some kind of land use regulations that might be legally binding on oil and gas development. Um, and that's a challenge. As we know from even from counties and municipalities that are trying to do that, you know, it can run into problems, but uh, they're trying to do it. They're also doing some uh, really interesting kind of health impact studies. Um, there's one that, that the, these chapters are doing that's a, it's, it's focused on the, it comes from a, a Navajo perspective. Uh, so it's it's a unique approach to a uh, health and kind of just general impact assessment. Uh, so it's it's really interesting kind of what they're doing. And they're also, of course, doing you know the 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 usual protests. Um, there's a lease sale coming up in a few days, in fact, uh, or a little bit later this month. And in a few days, they're going to have protests in front of the BLM offices in New Mexico. And so so there is sort of some kind of conventional action, but there's also these different different things that are that they're doing that are you know maybe different than what we've seen in the past in other places. So it's it's pretty interesting. And how much support do they have from the Navajo Nation Council and from the Navajo government? Yeah, that's it's been mixed. Um and certainly the local chapters down there, I, you know, the people I talked to were pretty discouraged because the Navajo Nation as a whole, that is the tribal council, um, has not come out against drilling. They haven't even really made a strong statement that said, you know, let's hold off on drilling until we can figure out what's going on or until or we can assess it. 
they have sponsored some studies and that sort of thing, but they, they haven't come out very strongly. The Navajo Nation president, Russell Begay, he did uh, ask for a moratorium on new drilling and new leasing until the BLM finishes a new environmental analysis of this type of drilling and in these particular places. Um, the BLM has not so far listened to any of that. Um, they continue to lease out land and they continue to lease or issue drilling permits even as they're doing their resource management plan amendment um, for this area. So that's frustrating to everybody. And it's also frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely frustrating to uh, these Navajo individuals who see their government not standing up to this while in the meantime, the Pueblo tribes, the um, what's called the All Council, um, the All All Pueblo Council of Governors, that that's like a, basically a coalition of these tribal nations, the Pueblo tribal nations. They have come out and and made these requests, and they have come out and protested leases. Uh, they have acted, you know, pretty strongly against uh, oil and gas drilling. So. There is some discouragement as far as the Navajo Nation goes. And and part of the reason for that is because the Navajo Nation derives a very large part of its revenue from a combination of coal and oil and gas uh, development. And so for them to take a stand against, you know, a strong stand against any kind of development like that might might be problematic for them, you know, because then... It might give other people leverage to shut down oil and gas drilling on, on in other places where they derive income. And they don't want that right now. Yeah, just to zoom out a tick, you have sort of local activists working at one level. You have environmental organizations and um, these coalitions like the uh, the Pueblo councils coming together to fight it. And they're coming up against an administration, a federal administration, that is incredibly pro-energy um, with a mandate to basically lift any hurdle um, that energy development would have to clear. I'm wondering, when you talked to Kendra Pinto and to other activists, what did they see as the future of this movement? Um. You know, I mean, they're definitely, I think most of them are pretty discouraged because the uh, the BLM, one of the things, so the, the the overarching jurisdictional authority for all this is the Farmington office, field office of the BLM. And they don't have all the say, but, but they're the ones who do this holistic environmental analysis, for example, and, and they issue most of the drilling permits. They got a new district manager maybe back in 2014 or 2013, something like that. And she's an archaeologist, and she, she, they felt like she listened to their concerns. Um, they felt like, a lot of them felt like, you know, things were changing for the better. It was going slowly. It wasn't great, but they were changing for the better. And then Trump comes in, and now they're pretty discouraged on the one hand. On the other hand, I think that it has... Uh, energize their movement as well. I mean, between, I, I mean, I've seen it, the movement grow and gain more support just in the last six months. I mean, really, since I started writing this story, since I started reporting it back during the summer, uh, things have changed. 
as far as that goes. You've got the New Mexico congressional delegation is really strongly behind it. Uh, you've got um, you've got the state legislature is a lot of those lawmakers are actually in favor or are actually working with the, the activists and the protesters, even though New Mexico derives huge amounts of its revenue from from oil and gas development. So I, I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, I think on the one hand, it's it's going to really impact this area a lot. If Zink's, um, if Zinke's rollbacks go through and Trump's rollbacks go through and they stick, it's going to be, it's going to be huge in the San Juan Basin because there's so many, so much development there already um, that, uh, you know, taking away regulations now to, from a, a pretty unregulated industry is just going to be, you know, potentially catastrophic at the same time, you know, people see that and they're rising up and um, protesting like crazy. The, the latest lease sale that's going to occur this month uh, got so far has received over 400 official protests to it, which is as far as I know, an unprecedented number of protests. So, so, you know, there's good things going on and bad things going on. Well, thanks for talking today, Jonathan and if you want more on energy, on tribal affairs, or on environmental activism, you can visit hcn.org. If you want to continue this conversation online, visit kvnf.org. For West Obsessed, I'm Kate Schimmel, Deputy Editor Digital at High Country News. Thanks for listening. <laughs>